does something special to my brain and creates a sense of openness and inspiration. Good morning, afternoon or evening and Merry Christmas on this final episode for 2020. Fear not, I'm not going to mention what a year it's been. Joining me, Gillian Knipe, to explore the art of stories today is the very talented American artist, Cecilia Charlton. Cecilia creates exceptional works, mostly abstract textiles, which seem to fuse body, landscape and mind in an array of electric colour mixes and sizzling patterns. Whether derived from thread, fabric or brush, they reveal the skill and passion of a meticulous hand. If you check out her website, ceciliacharlton.com, you'll notice her attention to detail and her grasp of installation and curatorial flair is displayed right down to the detail of how you click your way through the images. I hope you enjoy our conversation and I'd very much like to thank those listeners in the United States, Australia, France, India, Romania, Germany, Canada, Ireland, Mexico, Denmark, Spain, Netherlands, Iceland, Belgium, Russia, South Africa, Italy, Philippines, New Zealand, South Korea, Poland, Colombia, Brazil, Bulgaria, Japan, Portugal, Malta, Slovakia, Sweden, Panama, Switzerland, Kenya, Croatia, Greece, Estonia, Bangladesh, El Salvador, and, not surprisingly, the UK. Apologies, of course, if I've missed anyone anywhere. Once again, seasonal best to all, and I'll be back in February 2021 the need or desire for ornament and decoration in our lives appears to be a universal one, an aspect of the human condition which can be found in the caves of prehistoric man, in the pyramids and tombs of ancient Egypt, in the temples of Greece, through Etruscan times, the Middle Ages, the geometric ornament of Islam, and the patterned wallpapers and textiles of today. To begin with, of course, welcome Cecilia Charlton to Art Fictions. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here. Now, you've chosen two amazing short stories by Italo Calvino, which I'll endeavour to summarise. A sign in space takes a scientific fact of the time, so it might no longer have any credit, and winds a story around it. In this tale, it is the idea that the galaxy slowly revolves. The narrator, <laughs> how do you pronounce the narrator's name? Kufufuk. Kufuk. It's Q-F-W-F-Q, but I, I'm going to just refer to this character as Q. That's a good solution. Okay. So Q flips between utter delight and miserable disillusion as he creates a sign of his existence, which is the first sign to ever exist, only to have it scrubbed out by his competitor, K-G-W-G-K, which is another palindrome, obviously, who in turn creates a plethora of his own poorly executed signs. It's worth noting that it takes Q 600 million years to circle the galaxy and return to the place where his sign is located, all the while contemplating the vision of his sign. So this is a character of eternal being. In the end, the world becomes so crammed with signs and signs of signs and things which become signs of themselves that making any kind of sign would be to create something indistinguishable and therefore continuing to look for his original sign is futile. And as if that wasn't challenging enough, the other story chosen by Cecilia is the origin of the birds. This episode 
because that's what these stories feel like, centres on birds arriving late in the history of evolution. Birds suddenly appear, so Q follows one to the void, which he discovers is populated by evolutionary monsters, rejected forms, the unusable and the lost. Q crosses over to discover the incomparably beautiful, get ready for it, Org, Onia, Ornette, Or. Backwards, it's actually, I worked out, Rotten, Roran, Ogro, which is Spanish for ogre. <laughs> She's referred to as Or for short, and Q attempts to save Or, who goes on to become Queen Or of the birds and the other rejects. They marry, then she ousts him because he cannot forget his old world, which he has merged with his new world in the realisation that all the non-monsters were derived from the monsters. The whole tale is told as a comic strip where Q is both the main character as well as the animator. Okay, so maybe we could just start with an understanding of why you chose these stories in the first place. Yeah, so in this collection of short stories, Calvino uses an approach to writing that I just find incredibly original. A sign in space to me seems to work almost as an allegory for many aspects of being an artist. Um, and the origin of the birds in part highlights the balance between language and image that visual artists have to navigate. Mostly though, I chose these stories because they make me laugh out loud. I remember the first time reading the stories, being really surprised and excited by the way he describes these non-human entities and expanses of time that are not usually possible within the realm of other fiction stories. So this sense of originality is something I really enjoy when, when looking at art. When I see something I feel like I've never seen before that feels fresh, um, it's something I try to do in my own work. It does something special to my brain and creates a sense of openness and inspiration. So it's just like there's this feeling in my brain that kind of like your brain kind of cracks open. And I feel that way when I read these stories. On the one hand, they're incredibly deep in meaning, but on the other hand, they're ludicrous as well. So you can laugh out loud and you can think anything's possible, which is what I think makes them so accessible, even though they are really difficult. I'm going to read out a sense of what they're like to read. This is Q talking. I conceived the idea of making a sign, that's true enough, or rather, I conceived the idea of considering a sign as something that I felt like making. So when, at that point in space and not in another, I made something meaning to make a sign, it turned out that I really had made a sign after all. <laughs> That's so simple. And yet, I had to read it purposely slowly. And in fact, in some parts, I was reading it out loud to myself, like a child. I thought perhaps you could read a bit from the text. Yeah, I'd love to. So this passage is at the beginning of A Sign in Space, where he's first describing what it meant to even make a sign. In other words, considering it was the first sign ever made in the universe, or at least in the circuit of the Milky Way, I must admit it came out very well. Visible? What a question! Who had eyes to see in those days? Nothing had ever been seen by anything. The question never even arose. Recognizable, yes, beyond any possibility of error because all the other points in space were the same, indistinguishable, and instead this one had the sign on it. Brilliant, why did you choose that to read? Well, it's just kind of like a reflection on that sense of innovation that one feels as an artist. Also, the idea of doing something that not only had it never been done before, but the conception 
of that thing being done had never been conceived of before. So just really this pioneering spirit. I know that that's a physical reality that he's referring to, he, uh, whatever gender Q is. Yeah, right. But I also thought of while I was reading it, when something is new, you don't have eyes to see, you know, you don't understand how to look at something. And I think that's a challenge for us all in art, really. Yeah, I think that's why it's so valuable to talk to peers about your work, because it's hard to know what you're doing while you're doing it. You know, that's partially why I really enjoy artist retrospectives, because you can see everything in context and it begins to kind of tell a story. Yeah, I also think that it's important for people going to see art to be confident in what they're seeing, to just look. You know, I remember going to galleries uh, with my kids when they were little, back when I could bribe them, and we would always play I Spy, just so that they would feel comfortable with looking at art. There's a sense when you're an adult that you have to get it, you know, you, you just have to look, really. It sounds really simple, but it does take a bit of discipline. Was there another piece you wanted to read as well? Yeah, so this is kind of the middle part of a sign-in space. So this is Q talking. I was disheartened, and for many light years, I let myself be dragged along as if I were unconscious. When I finally raised my eyes, in the meanwhile, sight had begun in our world, and as a result, also life. I saw what I would never have expected to see. I saw it, the sign, but not that one, a similar sign, a sign unquestionably copied from mine, but one I realized immediately couldn't be mine. It was so squat and careless and clumsily pretentious, a wretched counterfeit of what I had meant to indicate with that sign, whose ineffable purity I could only now, through contrast, recapture. So tell me about that quote. Well, the beginning, the first sentence, I was disheartened. And for many light years, I let myself be dragged along as if I were unconscious. <laughs> I just really relate to that. It's like an emotional roller coaster being an artist. You get really excited about something and then something happens to kind of deflate your sense of confidence. And, and then it's just you plummet into the depths of uncertainty. But then he sees a sign that is, you know, a copy of this sign and then he starts to rebuild his feelings about the original sign. It's almost like he doesn't really know how to feel. He's really depressed at the beginning of this paragraph. And then by the end, he's believing so strongly in his original sign that he's so affronted by this, this inferior replica of his sign. And there's something in that that is about the fear of the next generation, perhaps. Yeah, well, so that... <laughs> Like later down in the page, it's still kind of on that topic. He says, I wanted immediately to make a new sign in space, a real sign that would make K, the other entity, die of envy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know. Was it, was it Picasso who got to a point in his life where he could no longer go to exhibitions, but he said he did keep up with what was going on in books and magazines. And as far as he was concerned, nobody was doing anything interesting on you. <laughs> it was so egotistic that, you know, after me, nobody's doing anything. That's the funny thing about being an artist, I feel like, is you have to have a certain amount of self-confidence in order to continue to invest yourself in this pursuit. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of the artists that I know are just completely plagued with self-doubt at the same time. And so it's maybe this battle of these internal dialogues, and it just depends on which one's speaking louder at any given time. I always think what's tricky is that you're not necessarily driven by 
I suppose, a common definition of ego to create work in the first place. You're driven by something far deeper that is very difficult for even you to understand. But then to put it out in the world so that you can keep doing it requires a sort of level of ego and belief that you don't necessarily have. <laughs> you know, it's nothing, nothing to do with that inner drive. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Hilma Offklin a little bit, that series of works that she made as a commission from these spirits that she was communing with. I don't feel like all of us need to have that sort of storyline as the impetus to create work. But I relate to that in a way of just this impulse kind of driving my work. And I am the vehicle for that work to be made. Yeah. And then she also had this belief in her work that it wasn't to be understood in her time and that she had kind of the relationship with the spirits in order to create the work. And then she created this buffer for herself to not have them reviewed during her lifetime. It's a funny solution to the balancing act that you're talking about. Yeah, it definitely seems to come from a very soulful place, doesn't it? Okay. Is there anything else you want to add or? Yeah. So this is at the beginning of the origin of birds. Q is describing when he first hears the sounds of the birds. But instead, one morning, I hear some singing outside that I had never heard before. Or rather, since we didn't know what singing was, I hear something making a sound that nobody has ever heard before. I look out. I see an unknown animal singing on a branch. He had wings, feet, tail, claws, spurs, feathers, plumes, fins, quills, beak, teeth, crop, horns, crest, wattles, and a star on his forehead. It was a bird. You've realized that already, but I didn't. They had never been seen before. I did like that a lot, that, uh, that part. Yeah, I guess it's a bit about that moment before we know what we know now. I took this anthropology course in college and one of our exercises was to imagine you're an alien coming to earth and describe what you're looking at and try to make conjectures on what, what is happening. It's just kind of a funny thought experiment to put yourself in the position of not knowing the things you take for granted. Yeah, yeah. I find it interesting that that passage is about birds evolving later than mammals. And I have this notion that beat and drumming come from somewhere very internal because you have a heartbeat. So <laughs> without sort of even thinking of it, you've got an embodiment of a sound that you then create. Whereas melody, I think, comes a lot later. And I have this idea that it can only come from birds because what other creature makes such a tuneful sound? And therefore, melody is a very external invention. It's just this theory going on in my own head, but I, I really like it. I'm quite committed to it. And I also like the idea that you have an internal and an external that are in collaboration with one another. Do, do you understand what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting because the melody is often carried by the soprano. So yeah, maybe you're onto something there. There's, okay, so then there's this paragraph that has a good implementation of his references to the cartoon strips. So I felt like that was an important writing strategy to highlight. So Q says, there's no use my telling you in detail the cunning I use to succeed in returning to the continent of the birds. In the strips, it would be told with one of those tricks that would work well only in drawings. The frame is empty. I arrive. I spread paste on the upper right-hand corner. I sit down in the lower left-hand corner. 
A bird enters, flying from the left at the top. As he leaves the frame, his tail becomes stuck. He keeps flying and pulls after him the whole frame stuck to his tail, with me sitting at the bottom, allowing myself to be carried along. Thus, I arrive at the land of the birds. If you don't like this story, you can think up another one. The important thing is to have me arrive there. <laughs> so yeah, he's implementing a few different writing strategies there with the reference to the cartoon and the reference of the imagery and how it would be represented in the cartoon. But then the direct comment to the reader <laughs> proposing that they could offer a different story and they can make one up on their own. But the important thing is I've arrived there and don't ask too many questions. <laughs> so I just thought that was a innovative paragraph. Yeah, it is because it changes the ego of the narrator because Hugh gives such a sense in that story of wanting to own not only the story, but the visuals that you might create of the story by creating those visuals for you, which I think is very presumptuous, even though, you know, I mean, it's very funny and absolutely very innovative, but he's also not letting you as the reader have your own interpretation. And then there's just this little splice that you've mentioned in that paragraph where he says, or you can just invent your own thing. And you think, oh, okay, thank you very much. I suppose it's like when, when I go to an exhibition, I would never read anything about the exhibition before I look at the work because I don't want somebody to narrate how I ought to look at the work. And even though there's a certain and a very definite insecurity I feel with looking at work, I want to feel that insecurity. I want to feel like I don't know what I'm looking at. I want to come to the work as freshly as I possibly can and feel surprised I suppose and then to me it's the opposite of what Q's doing to me I would then read the blurb and hopefully that will expand my ideas somewhat it's not there to correct me yeah I definitely know what you mean and like because I often find myself doing that too when I'm at an exhibition I look at the work and then I kind of veer towards whatever text there is available to read it's almost like I rely on the text that's accompanying the work as a bit of a crutch because of so much information coming to us through language and through the written word. I feel like we really look to the written word to help us to understand things. And that's not saying that there isn't a place for the written word to enhance what we're getting through our eyes. But I feel like even as a visual artist who's relatively accustomed to looking at things, I still find myself kind of gravitating towards the text. Like there's a bit of a comfort. One thing that I wonder about is like all the parallels between what he's describing in these stories and either being an artist or looking at art or talking about art, but how intentional do you feel like that is? I was thinking also about the semiotics with the sign and signifier and signified and all of that and him using the word sign. He could have said mark or symbol or... Well, I guess it was translated, so. But even the use of that word sign seems like it's relevant to discussions that I've had as being an artist. I don't know, what do you think? I think there's something to do with being a writer, being a similar thing. And when was this written? I've forgotten. Uh, 69. Yeah, I wonder if there was something around the time, something going on in writing and something going on within a particular genre of writing, perhaps these ideas of starting again or origins and how everything came into being because 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez also wrote A Hundred Years of Solitude in 1967. And in that book, he refers to the world was so recent that many things lacked names. And in order to indicate them, it was necessary to point. Yeah. So a similar kind of fixation. Yeah. On how do things come into being named and titled and discovered and I guess I think of it as slightly the other way around, that it relates to art so easily because art relates to trying to understand who we are and how we came into being and what we're about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of what um, I appreciate about his stories is that you have to kind of transport yourself. So what I've kind of done as I've been reading, especially the sign and space, is replace the word sign with the word art. And so you kind of have to transport yourself back to a time before art was even made or before, like, when you don't know what you don't know. As soon as I started reading A Sign in Space, I had this sense of, you know, forgetting to remember and remembering to forget. And then I get to the end of the bird story and Queen Orr is actually demanding that Q forget the past forget where he's come from. But Q finds this really difficult. And so he knows where he is now and he can't forget where he's come from. So he merges these two ideas into one holistic idea and realizes that the chosen beings actually derive from the unchosen beings. These monstrous characters that have been unchosen in that sort of path of evolution. And it's quite like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World where once they go outside the beautiful world that's all held up by Soma, uh, he finds these awful creatures, you know, women that actually age and whatnot. <laughs> I mean, how horrible. <laughs> how horrible. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, especially with Sign and Space, I felt like it was not only describing cycles of humanity and how we behave as a species over the course of human history, but also as as an artist you go through these cycles of creation and this sense that you're inventing something new that's never been done before and then you get obsessed with that and then you start to self-criticize and go into disappointment and then you go into this huge depression and then it's you bring yourself back out of that and then you're ready to reinvent yourself again and so it's just all these cycles over and over again um which yeah, it's almost like he says at the end of um, Sign in Space, he's almost kind of come to the conclusion that space is now just completely saturated with signs. And it really felt like as a contemporary artist, you know, we've seen painting die so many times and you just try to still feel like you're relevant. Like, why are we even making anything at all at this point? And how do we discover this sense of artistic identity? There's this book that I just got recently called The World of Ornament that is a record of many cultures' um, ornamental expression throughout um, history. And the first sentence in the introduction says, the need or desire for ornament and decoration in our lives appears to be a universal one, an aspect of the human condition which can be found in the caves of prehistoric man, in the pyramids and tombs of ancient Egypt, in the temples of Greece, through Etruscan times, the Middle Ages, the geometric ornament of Islam and the patterned wallpapers and textiles of today. So it seems like the the struggle of Q is the struggle of all artists and all people. There's this kind of 
integral desire to express ourselves and express something unique. Absolutely. I mean, he's quite tortured. In fact, at one point, he says something like the world starts to represent itself, then anything that's made can only be made in the context of what's come before and what's around them, which you well know as an artist. Yeah, I feel like that's something that I definitely think about. Like I was reading about the theory of multiple discovery, which is the idea that at any time, there's people developing ideas independently of each other. So for calculus, that was developed by two people at the same time, independent of each other. Evolution is another example. Like there's examples going back to BC, where people are coming up with the same idea at the same time in different cultures, like the crossbow. And so it's really funny to commit yourself every day to this pursuit and to feel like what you're doing is um, meaningful. But then I came across a Sheila Hicks quote, which is what would be better than to sit and weave and think, and then not to think, to just interlace yarns and amass networks of threads. And I completely relate to that idea. Some days, all I want to do is just sit and stitch all day. And it's completely fulfilling. And I think, what a better way to spend a day. Yeah, that recalls my previous interview with Hannah Brown when she said, what could be more lovely than spending time to look at the landscape? It was funny that you brought up the word holistic at the beginning when you were talking about the story, because I wrote that, da- that word down as well. And it also kind of reminds me of, do you know of the Rauschenberg work where he erased the de Kooning? Yeah, very naughty. To my understanding, Rauschenberg purchased a de Kooning drawing and then erased the entire drawing and then presented the, well, it's not a blank piece of paper because, you know, there's still the evidence of erasures and things, but presented it as his own work. Uh, I was reminded of that artwork in A Sign in Space also, just this perpetual desire to, you know, one-upsmanship <laughs> in art, aware of who else is out there creating and Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Q thinks everything else that comes after his original sign is rubbish compared to his original sign. But if only he could find his original sign, which he can't. It's just perpetual torture of the artist, isn't it? Like he thinks everyone else's is rubbish, but he also thinks his own is rubbish, you know? So I suppose it's the same thing with writers, the same thing with musicians that, you know, you oscillate between the idea that you've produced gold or shit. Yes, I mean, it can happen yeah one night I'll leave the studio thinking I've really cracked something and I'm really on to something amazing and then I'll come back in the morning and realize that it's not a great avenue to go down. There's also in the sign story uh, the idea that the sign is not the thing it signifies nor can one claim to fully or properly describe a thing or an idea with a word or another symbol. And I was thinking of that with regards to the naming of artworks and the artwork itself and theories of artworks. And that kind of connects to Susan Sontag and her compilation of essays in Against Interpretation that you have an interest in. Yeah, just this idea that paralysis by analysis is a phrase that has come up earlier this year for me. This interest in using language to talk through what is usually a physical or emotional or visual experience. Agnes Martin has a quote that says, like music, abstract art is thematic. It holds meaning for us that is beyond expression in words. In 1961, she created a painting called Words. You know, in her signature style, it's triangles and lines. It's not 
words, obviously, um, but maybe challenging this idea that there are any words that can stand in place of an artwork. So yeah, Susan Sontag's essay Against Interpretation was kind of responding to this interest in the 60s to art criticism. Maybe people were relying on art criticism to describe what artwork should be to them instead of allowing the artwork to be itself and express itself outside of language. And that's something that I've struggled with throughout my experience in fine art is trying to describe artwork with words. It always has felt to me like it's a communication mode that are different. They shouldn't be expected to replace each other or stand in for each other. It's always felt to me as if like talking about artwork is like trying to smell a sound. I thought of it as a way of trying to tame creativity. I'm not arguing to do away with art criticism or art interpretation or writing around art, especially in the 60s. I feel like there were all these new modes of art that were coming out that required a certain amount of explanation in order for people to understand what was happening. But I think the thing that I resist and what makes me a bit nervous is we almost look to language to be the primary mode of communication and to say a word about an artwork or even a series of words even if those words have multiple meanings, it still feels very constraining. Yeah, it just feels a bit like you're taming a wild horse. I'm not interested in doing away with writing about art per se, but I am interested in that becoming less caught up in its own existence. You know, it is the tank boat behind the main ship, the main ship being the artwork in itself. Like I was thinking when I was thinking about doing my artist talk at school, like how could I do an artist talk that doesn't rely on language? Like, can I get up there and do a dance or even like series of images? For my first artist talk at school, I read The Bathysphere. It's the first exploration method of seeing the deep ocean. So it was in the 1930s that they were doing this and they would literally just, it was a steel sphere, I believe it was steel, and it had a cable with the air supply, and they would just go down as deep as they could go. And in 1930, they went down to 3,000 feet. And there's this description that the scientist at the time, William Beebe, wrote of the experience of going down and 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 down into the depths of the ocean. And that's one piece of reading that I've read alongside a presentation of images of my work in order to kind of describe a sensation that I'm hoping is similar to what the sensation is with my art. Does that make sense? It actually does make a lot of sense. And we have talked before about this sort of idea of talking in parallel to the work, talking alongside the work. I was thinking the other day that I feel like I'm kind of between, you know, those prehistoric women making textiles and Frank Stella. I'm just going to move on to talk a little bit more about your work. So William Weaver became Italo Calvino's translator. And he actually came about as his translator because the previous translator, and I do like this story a lot, uh, worded the title without colours as black and white which Italo saw as a complete misjudgment. And I thought of this meticulous judgment of colour very much relating to your work because you have this striking use of colour 
and pattern and pattern mixing. And anybody who knows me knows I love a bit of pattern mixing. And uh, perhaps you could introduce us to your Technicolor textile works. Yeah, so I guess I'm building on a legacy of women within my family, but then also just the legacy of creatives. I have a book called Women's Work, which studies prehistorical textiles. So from 20,000 years ago, people were not only making textiles, but they were making decorative textiles with individual flair and everything. And so I'm trying to use that history and apply it towards fine art and abstraction in particular. Color is funny to me because I don't actually think that hard about it. It's very intuitive. Um, I've got this Annie Alpers quote, being creative is not so much the desire to do something as the listening to that which wants to be done, the dictation of the materials. And so sometimes it's really material driven. If I have a lot of green, for example, I think, what could I do with all this green? But then you need to be, if you like, not afraid of colour in the first place. And, you know, that comes from a certain place, a certain familiarity. I think it's just not overthinking it. I just try to make combinations that kind of like this book, like they feel fresh, they excite me. The wool that I buy has around 50 colors, but then within each color, it has a whole gradient of values within that color. So it ends up being 421 colors. And so you can get these really subtle differences, hardly distinguishable from each other by the naked eye. But then once you lay them into a pattern, it really matters whether you're using one color versus the other. But it's a lot of trial and error. I feel a bit like a scientist sometimes, you know? So, you know, you have these pipettes and you're titrating different chemicals together and you're waiting for the magic thing to happen. And sometimes the difference between no magic and magic is one, you know, tiny drop of something. And it's something that I've seen with my mom because she works in textiles and she's made all these quilts and everything. And I feel like I must get a certain sensibility of color just from growing up in an environment created by her. Yeah, which is lovely when you've inherited something, you know, you have that familiarity and you did talk about the sort of science side of things with your father. Yeah, I find a lot of relationship between science and art. Um, I feel like it's a lot to do with ingenuity and problem solving and thinking outside the box and wanting to discover, really. So I've spoken to you before about my interest in black work and I've actually messed around with it myself and it's very regimented. I'll begin with one pattern, I'll make an error, hopefully, and then I'll continue with that error, which becomes the next pattern and so on and so forth. So that it's continually changing. And I understand when you're making work, you're not necessarily working to some sort of regimen, even though the outcome looks very organized. Are you working within the shape or are you working within the pattern? Which comes first? I just, I feel like there's a difference between organization and planning. Um, because the interesting thing about textiles is that, you know, I've tried a lot of textile processes at this point, weaving, knitting, embroidery, quilting, and what's common amongst almost all of them is that they operate on pixels. So they have this organizational structure built in. And that's not to say you have to follow that organizational structure, like obviously, but if you're working within the traditions, that provides a sense of organization. 
but just because I'm working within a sense of organization doesn't mean that they are all planned from start to finish. So the way I'm usually thinking about it is I know what pattern I am working with at any particular time, but I don't know where exactly I'm going with that pattern. And so there's this sense of let's just see what happens. And oftentimes I'm really surprised by what happens and where the pattern goes and how it fits into the shape. Because I usually have the size of each embroidery marked out on the canvas with pencils. So I know where the borders are going to be. I don't know how that pattern is going to hit that border once it gets there. It always feels so crazy to me when I'm doing it because the risk is that you spend, you know, 10 hours laying in some pattern or some color that it just doesn't work and you have to take it all out and uh, start back over again. Like that's the compromise that you make. I feel like there are people that get excited about the planning and that aspect of this type of art making. But for me personally, knowing where it's all going to go, it would reduce the creative process to just execution. So let's come back to the materials that you're using. How are you choosing out of silk and wool and whatever you are sewing with? Yeah, it just depends on the project. I started working with the wool primarily because of the color range that they offer. Even when I was painting, the way I was using paint was really similar to the way I'm using wool now, where I would make gradients of color. So have a batch of color, paint an area mix in a tiny amount of another color in order to change it slightly. And so having that really nuanced way of laying color into an artwork has been important to me. So that might be why I was drawn to this wool. And then I usually use the silk thread when I'm doing the embroidery on lace. I think just because it's a more delicate material, it has kind of a slightly different aesthetic to it because the silk is shiny. And so it kind of reflects light in a way that wool doesn't. You talked just now about painting because you originally did a master's in painting at the Royal College. So where are you at with this idea of painting being an art form using paint or an art form using stitching and other materials? Is it the same thing in your mind? Is it just artworks? Are these categories irrelevant? Yeah, well, I found this other Sheila Hicks quote where she said, I want the things I make with this material to receive as much consideration as painting, sculpture, drawing, photography. So I make an effort to enter them into public viewing places to elevate them further into the eyes of those who look at the art of our time. I was thinking the other day that I feel like I'm kind of between, you know, those prehistoric women making textiles and Frank Stella, you know. When I just completed my new works, I was just looking at them in my studio and trying to put myself in the position of someone who hadn't come across my works before. Obviously, because it's a 2D surface on a wall, you would immediately assume that it was painted. But then because of the physical manipulations of the wool and the gold and the shadows that happen because of the physical presence of the stitches, you get these shadows on the gold surface. And so the surface itself gets really confusing as you try to understand what it is even that you're looking at. I'm not really so concerned about the categorizations. And it's frustrating to me that it becomes so important in people's minds how they get categorized. Like, do you want to be craft or do you want to be art? 
I remember a friend of mine walked into my parents' house one time and he goes, wow, your mom's really an artist, isn't she? And that's never a term my mom would use to describe herself. And as a person who has worked in craft, you know, I've seen people who are just as committed and just as passionate and just as knowledgeable as artists, but the primacy of fine art over craft, it's obviously not something to ignore because it's still part of the conversation, but it's something that I struggle with for sure. It occurs to me as you're talking that there is a lot of that delineation which comes from art criticism itself. And then that art criticism starts to direct the way that we look at things. I was just reading this morning about a criticism of Helen Frankenthaler's work. And when I was looking at her work, I was thinking, how directly am I looking at her work? And how much am I looking at it through a lens that I've been directed to look at it through? Do you understand what I mean? Sorry, I should say I was actually looking at her work in the context of this conversation and just looking around for commentary on work done by women. I ended up finding a comment by Nikolaus Schaffhausen, who is director of Vienna's Kunsthalle that appeared in Der Spiegel in 2013. He says, testosterone is seen as normal, not worth mentioning, while art as women is always viewed as something different, as female or feminist. Both of those adjectives are often taken as grounds for exclusion. You've talked now about these categories of craft and art, and you've also talked about the craftsmanship that you've learned through your mum and the lineage within your family. And so do you have a sort of response or an idea of how you see yourself in the picking up of that, you know, I don't want to be categorised as doing women's art or female art, which Helen Frankenthaler, along with Lee Krasner at the time, were disapproving of as a lot of artists today. And yet part of me wonders whether that rejection is because work that women makes is seen as lesser. So you don't want to be associated with work that has a female lineage. Well, I've, I struggled with that when I first started making embroidery works, especially coming from big painting and big abstract painting. I felt like as a woman, it felt really empowering. And then I thought, what am I doing reliving this Victorian oppression? <laughs> you know, I'm just sitting here sewing every day like women were forced to and that women fought so hard to have the opportunity to do something other than this. Like, what would Jane Austen think? Would she see this as a complete regression of feminist ideals? But then the other thing that I thought was that, to me, real feminism is having the choice to do whatever it is that you want to do. Hopefully the feminism that we've all been striving for isn't defined by anything specifically. It's defined by choice. And then the other thing that I realized was that with my history, learning all of these skills in sewing, as that's what it happened to be. So to deny myself the use of that knowledge base that's been building for generations would be an act of self-oppression. <laughs> so it felt very true to myself to pursue this line, even if the act of sewing and the act of sewing by a woman was, you know, it's very charged. Yeah, yeah. That makes a very sweet connection with Helen Frankenthaler actually saying in an interview in Art Forum, one must be oneself, whatever. 
I mean, I am a bit excited that this all could potentially be on the verge of changing. There is this exhibition of the G's Bend quilt makers, Alison Jacques, right now. And obviously, they've been working in that tradition for quite some time. And it's only now that they're getting recognized as abstract art. One thing I find so exceptional about that work, and I saw some of the quilts in the We Will Walk exhibition, which was at the Turner Contemporary in Margate. And because they had to use whatever was available, of course, all the colours were sort of mismatched. And also there are other colours that had faded or where you could see that the sun hit the quilt. So they'd faded in a really unexpected patterning. Oh, God, they're just so, so gorgeous. I'm glad to see that there is room for people to consider other art forms. Thinking about the elevation of painting over every other (laughs) medium. Well, that sort of very narrow distinguishing doesn't exist in every culture. You know, thinking of, I don't know, like Japan, for instance. So it is just a construct. Yeah, and I I just wonder if that might help, like, life in general, if we think about art, not so much about this painting that's behind this cordon at this museum. It's more of, like, a way of being. The other quote that I always come back to in, in regards to your Helen Frankenthaler quote is a Dolly Parton quote. She says, figure out who you are and then do it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Touche. doesn't matter what that is. It's just be authentic, yeah. I'm just so curious about your titles. I'm going to read two of them out. A Certain Slant of Light, Labyrinthine Pathways of Diamonds, which is that gorgeous triptych on hand-embroidered silk on lace over cotton fabric. And there's also, it might have been a walk-in spirit, brackets, according to my 72-year-old Peruvian roommate. Where do these titles come from? Well, that one came from my real life, if you can believe it. (laughs) So I did have a 72-year-old Peruvian roommate, and uh, she was of Incan descent, and so had a belief in certain mysticisms. And she attributed to this experience that I had in my life as potentially being the result of a walk-in spirit. I don't know if you're familiar with walk-in spirits. It's the idea that there's an episode in your life where you typically lose consciousness. And before that episode, you've had certain issues or certain things that you've been trying to deal with and haven't been able to get past. And then after the episode, it all kind of resolves itself. And the idea is that during your loss of consciousness, one spirit has left and a new one has come in. And so that title is a title that came to me as I was working through the composition. I usually start my works with an idea, a compositional or material-driven idea. And then once the work is completed, I kind of start to figure out what the work is about. It's interesting that you bring up Gabriel Garcia Marquez, actually, because a lot of Marquez's stories take place in a fictional world called Macondo, which is based on his grandparents' hometown, where he spent some of his time when he was growing up. And it just seemed to relate to my titles, because it just strikes me how surreal reality can seem. Because like we talked about with might have been a walk in spirit title, that's just something that I am describing from my life. But extracted from the context of the story, it takes on this kind of surreal, poetic, magical sense to it, like otherworldly even. And I feel like that's kind of what happens with his stories. 
he's basing them on this real place with real people and then kind of expanding from there to generate this kind of magical quality about it. So speaking of spirits, you are currently working on the three fates. We should probably just say first that the the three fates are the three spinners from Greek mythology and they would typically appear at the birth of a new baby. They're three sisters, aren't they? It comes up differently in different places, but most of the time they're represented as three sisters, yeah. So regardless of the culture, one represents birth, which is the spinner, one represents life, which is the woman who draws out the thread, and one represents death, which is the cutting of the thread. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. So I've made a lot of works thinking about the generational relationships in my family with me and my mom and my grandmother and even my great-grandmother. But I realized a relationship that I hadn't explored yet was my two sisters. So I'm the middle girl. Ah. I also have a younger brother, um, so he's not to be excluded. But within the context of this artwork, it was specifically about the relationship with my two sisters. And then that made me think about the three fates mythologies. And then it became an even more interesting metaphor because of the symbology of the thread. Um, and so to do an embroidery work about these three sisters while also kind of talking about my personal relationships with my two sisters seemed to kind of unify this personal relationship that I have with this universal experience. How big are they going to be? They are going to be 85 centimeters wide and two meters tall each one <laughs> how long will that take see i look at your work and think okay i'm putting in about two years there i'm sketching out about a month per panel and where where are we going to see those do we know yet that is tbd okay so as soon as that's final i can put it on my instagram yes i will let you know and another brand new series that will be on show at uh, London Art Fair in January. It's a series of two diptychs called The Dawn of a New Day. And it's kind of to do with the current moment. The section of the fair that I'm going to be showing in is called Platform. And it's specifically curated around folk art. And it's going to be on from January 18th for two weeks at... A location in Mayfair. Okay. Let's come back to Agnes Martin or Agnes Martin. So the interest in her work, I understand, is a connection with where she lived in the desert, where you have traveled before and had an interest in possibly settling there. And also her place in art history in terms of how she saw her place and how she was seen. Do you want to talk a little bit about her as somebody you've been looking at at the moment? Yeah. So the book I was looking through was the catalog from the Tate exhibition. Yeah, I was there several times. <laughs> and another way that I've felt related to her recently is just her reclusiveness. I didn't realize how much I enjoy just being at home and having a very limited daily experience because my studio is in my flat. And so I'm really happy just having my entire existence within the walls of my apartment the lore that I've read about her is that she didn't read a newspaper for 50 years before she died. That's the way that I'm really different from her, actually, because I do, I read the news all the time. But just this way of paring down the distractions that being out in the world can create. 
it's funny because I was really attracted to her paintings even when I was working within painting, but then even more so when I got into textiles because of the way that my textile work is perceived, like the things you were describing earlier, this confusion of planning with organization. Um, so she considered her works to be expressive and her grids were not a result of over meticulous planning. Even when I was painting, I struggled to identify gesture because with my paintings, my gesture happened to be a very clean taped line. Kind of like the sign in space. We're all trying to identify our unique gesture and that might not be the sloppy brush mark. For Agnes Martin, that would be a very clean ruled line parallel to all the other lines. And the difficulty in establishing a gestural expression that is often confused with a planned expression is kind of a area where I find myself grappling with. And from what I understand, she grappled with as well to not get put into the category of minimalists um, to instead be considered as an abstract expressionist. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's just too much emotional response in looking at those works to be pinned down in any sort of narrow categorization, especially when we think of minimalism, which is a category that has changed its meaning over time. Yeah. So, and also just the experience of being in front of her works, I feel like is something that is really at the core of art for me. It's really amazing to be moved by a light pencil mark and a bit of gray. <laughs> Cecilia, when you're not reading Italo Calvino, what are you reading? Now, you know that I'm kind of setting you up here because you originally sent me six stories. Was it six that you couldn't decide between? <laughs> it was two stories from three writers, one being Italo Calvino, one being Miranda July, and the other being Gabriel Garcia Marquez. They do the same thing in my brain that I was describing earlier. Um, I remember the first time I read the Miranda July, so she's got a book of short stories called No One Belongs Here More Than You, which kind of ties back into that Dolly Parton quote a bit, like permission to just be yourself. Um, and when the first time I read that book, I finished it and just started it right back at the beginning again. It was just such a revelation for me, not only because of the intention of the book um, to present all these awkward, highly emotional analyses of the human experience, um, but also just because of the way she tells stories. It was similar to the Italo Calvino, so the innovation of it, as well as just the strangeness of it. Another book that I've read is Lars Mitting. He's Norwegian, so I don't quite know how to pronounce that, but it's The 16 Trees of the Psalm. Amazing book. First book that has ever made me cry while reading oh, it. Oh, lovely. It's just really beautiful study of a family relationships and the delicacy and nuance of those, the stories that are told and not told, as well as a strong presence of craft and making. So that is another book that I've read recently that I really enjoyed. I'm currently reading Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, which I've had on my shelf for quite some time and just starting to pick out now. I feel like it's probably pretty important reading for any, any creative period, but female creative in particular. Are you reading that in your studio, which is your own room? 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I just want to say thanks very much for being on Art Fictions. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a really interesting way to think about my practice and to think about literature. Thank you to this week's guest and to all the artists who continue to inspire this podcast. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knight. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, please review, and of course you're welcome to get in touch with me directly if you'd like more information via my Instagram, artfictions2020, or my website, gillianknight.co.uk. Across these you'll find images of the artist's work, as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. Many thanks to Griffin Knight for his original music composition and performance. Happy reading and art viewing till next time. But I'm really pleased to have had this conversation, you know, going into Christmas and this whole weirdness that's going on now, because there is a lot of, you know, fairly deep stuff to think about. Yeah, definitely. Just ways of being in the world, I think, is a lot of what I think about and a lot of what I think a lot of us are thinking about in this moment. I think so, yeah. And just a sense of, yeah, connectedness, I guess, even if we can't be physically in the same space. All of us monsters and non-monsters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too true. Okay, see you then. Have a fantastic day. Have a great Christmas. And I'll okay, you too. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right, bye-bye.